All right, good morning, Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. And um, we are uh, continuing to do this kind of unusual study of actually how to study the Bible while studying the Bible. And uh, we're going to be diving into the book of Colossians, but not till next week because we still have a few things to learn. We've been talking about how the Bible, um, often what happens is we, we, we come to a place like this, we often are drawn here and we don't know why, and often our lives maybe have not turned out where we wanted them to turn out, and we begin to realize we're not the God we thought we were, and, and somehow we come to places like this and we try to find answers. And we think that if we just come to a place like this and, and we get enough information, that, that somehow that'll change everything. And it's true, we come here and we learn more. We learn about Jesus, we learn about God. But the crazy thing that happens is as we gain that information, we begin to fall in love. And it's the craziest thing. It, we think we're here for information, but what happens is as we study God's word, as we begin to explore what Jesus did, we find ourselves falling in love with God. And, and, and what's crazy is the more we learn, the more we surrender, the more we develop this relationship. And so many of us have been on this journey for a long time. Some may be here just trying to figure out this whole God thing. That's incredibly great. And so what happens is as we begin to learn more, we surrender more. And then what happens, we don't change. God changes us. It's the craziest thing. I, if I hadn't experienced it, I wouldn't really believe it. Um, and then somebody, we get baptized often after we surrender our lives to Christ and, and admit that we're sinners and we need his help and that he has died for us and taken our place in our punishment and we realize he resurrected. And so we come up out of the baptism waters and somebody hands us a book and we say, all the answers are right here in this book. Good luck. And we pick up a book that was written over 2,000 years by over 30 different authors, none of whom, many of whom didn't know each other, and the book doesn't look like it makes any sense to us. And people say, well, just keep studying it. Have you studied your Bible today? Have you read your Bible? And you're like, I have no clue what's in that thing. I can't understand it. And then somebody like me says, well, without the Spirit of God, you won't understand the Scriptures. It'll make no sense to you. And so then you begin doubting your faith because you're like, wait a minute. I surrendered to Jesus. I know I love him. I know he's my savior. I know he died on the cross. And yet when I pick up this book, it makes no sense to me. I mean, it makes sense from a story standpoint. It makes sense as a historical document. But there are people that read this book that say they actually communicate with God through this book. They find the deeper truths in this book. It's incredible how they do it. They must be uniquely gifted. And yet, when we look at Scripture, I, I compared it in the first week. This is week six, so if you've missed out on the first five weeks or so, feel free to go on our website or on the Frank Bible Truth podcast or wherever and catch up. But the first week I talked about how I had a patient of mine in Wickenburg, Arizona, who had panned his whole life for gold. And he told me, you, you, you've never panned for gold. I said, oh, yes, I have. I went on a tourist thing. I went down to the river. I put my pan in the water, about an hour and a half left. He goes, you never panned for gold because you never believed it was there. And that's really where we are in this study, this ability to study Scripture. We have to be able to look at Scripture knowing there's a deeper truth. If we'll just stay in that Scripture 
And if we'll pay attention to the clues God gave us to pay attention to Scripture. And that's really what we're in right now. We're in a couple weeks of it's more like English class than it is Scripture, but it's necessary. It's a foundation. It's, I'm not going to teach you anything you probably don't know, but I'm going to show you how to use what you know to see the deeper truths of Scripture. Now, I have to tell you that um, my story, uh, when I was a kid, I loved math. My dad was an accountant. It came naturally. I started doing flip cards when I was four years old. By the time I actually went to school, I could do multiplication cards all the way through. I loved math. English, on the other hand, was not so easy. Probably because it was a second language for me. My native tongue made sense. English didn't make a lot of sense to me. And English sometimes was spoken in our home, but when I got to my relatives, we had to go back to the old language. English just didn't make sense. I really struggled with pronouns and conjunctions and verb usage and similes and metaphors and other things. Probably because I grew up in a place where in my language, none of those things mattered. English structure was the last thing on the mind of those who spoke Texan. It made no sense. English rules don't even apply. Pert near truth saying. It made no sense to me. But then one day when I was a kid, Saturday morning, in my PJs, watching TV, watching cartoons, eating Captain Crunch, and drinking Tang like the astronauts, all of a sudden my English troubles were over. Schoolhouse Rock. Schoolhouse Rock was the bomb. It, it rocked. Turn all those conjunctions and verb tenses into trains and take the pronouns and make them into connect. I mean, all of a sudden it was like the poof, it opened up. I could see it. And I thought I was done learning English until I got to seminary. And then when I got to seminary, they taught, well, first of all, there wasn't a Texan version of the King James, so you had to learn English. And so what they did was they sent you to this class called hermeneutics. And now the first thing I had to learn was how to spell hermeneutics. The second thing I had to learn is to try to figure out what it is. Biblical hermeneutics is the science of interpreting Scripture. How do you approach Scripture? To interpret Scripture, Scripture is also called to exegete. We have all these cool words. This is like medicine. And so to interpret Scripture is exegete. So I soon discovered that I needed to know English to, connect, to correctly exegete during hermeneutics. So learn those two words today, hermeneutics and execute. And when somebody says, hey, what did you do this weekend? You can say, oh, not much, just a bit of hermeneutics, you know, exegeting. It'll be great. But as much as I resisted it, when I learned English, the Bible started opening up. It shouldn't have surprised me. The writers of the Bible text use words to communicate. Words have power. And in this book, there's not a single word that doesn't matter. And this book is written by God, so every word definitely matters, and we have to pay attention to every word. Let me give you one example. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Okay? Anybody ever knocks on your door, says they're a Jehovah's Witness, pulls out their Bible and reads you that verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. One prepositional word, one little bitty letter, changes the entire meaning of the book of John. 
You have to be careful. You have to know what you're reading. All writers use tools. It's intricate in the use of language that makes great writers. My dad was a huge Jane Austen fan. I didn't get it, but he did. And I once asked him what made Jane Austen such a great writer, and he told me that she was a great writer because of her realism and her biting social commentary and her set her apart from others, a woman writing in a man's world and doing so anonymously. He said that she could craft amazing sentences that said so much in so few words. She painted a mental picture with words. Her words took you deeper into the story and the meaning that she was trying to convey. The Bible's like that. It was written by God. Its use of words and phrases and connections and pronouns and verb tenses encourage us to look deeper. I've been telling you that often these things are like specks of gold that come down the river. If you stop and pay attention, they tell you that there are nuggets coming. They're nearby. Stay there, abide, and learn what God has for you in those moments. So today I want to encourage you to persevere. I'll try to make this as interesting as possible. You may need to watch Schoolhouse Rock on YouTube along the way. But if you understand the deeper truths of Scripture, there are some basic things we just have to know. I just want to expose you to some basic principles that point you to gold. That that allow you to begin to process the depths of God's Word. And truthfully, the reason that you're taught to study this way is to slow you down. To slow you down. Most of the time we read through Scripture way too fast. In order for us to bide, in order for us to be with the Holy Spirit, in order for us to hear the truths of God's Word, we need to camp out on a passage and really, really look at it. We've been talking about the four C's of Bible study. We're still in the first C, which is the the content. What do I see? And basically, when we look at Scripture, the first thing we have to do is say, okay, what's here? What do I see? It's like a, a, like a, uh, a detective going to a crime scene. You're not trying to figure it out. You're not trying to understand it. You're not trying to solve the puzzle. You're just trying to notice everything. You'll figure it out later. Just Pay attention to what's in the text. Pay attention to all sorts of things. So we've been walking through how to listen and how to read and how to learn from the text. Well, what do we see? And then the next thing we're going to study after we get finished with this section, and we're going to do this by studying Colossians, is, okay, I see what I see. What did it mean to the first century audience? Because these letters in Scripture were written by a first century person first and foremost, to a first century audience. We have to know what it meant to them before we can try to figure out what it means, if anything, to us. The next thing that we look at is, okay, well, is that a truth that stays in the first century or is that one that God wants us to apply to our lives today? Does it travel forward? Is it a, is it a given truth by God that's true in all circumstances, all times for all people? And if it is, then we need to bring it forward and connect it to where we are. And then the last one is, okay, if that's a truth that God has revealed to me in Scripture and to all of us, the only reason He reveals it is not to fill our mind up with intelligence, but to change who we are. So with that truth now revealed to me, what do I need to do? Usually it is, what do I need to die to? What lie or what false truth have I believed that God is trying to replace with His truth? And that's the process of Bible study. So we're going to talk about that. We're looking right now to see everything we can see. We're not trying to understand what it means. We just want to see 
what we can see. And once we get the first C under control, once we begin to understand what it means to really, really understand the content of Scripture, everything flows downhill from there. It'll pay off quickly. Last week, I talked about what are we looking for? And I mentioned three things. I said we were looking for things that repeat. We're looking for things that compare, and we're looking for things that contrast. This week, we're going to look at three other things, things that connect, things that communicate, and things that are emphasized. And how are they emphasized? Now, there's a thread that runs through God's Word from beginning to end. There are themes that are, it's incredible when you begin to connect the dots and the Holy Spirit begins to show you that the story in Genesis relates to the story in Daniel, which relates to the story through the prophets, which, which relates to the New Testament, which ties up in, in Revelation. It's, I mean, it's, it just blows your mind when you begin to see these threads that run through Scripture. We see some things that are repeated, some things that are connected, some things that share ideas or thoughts or concepts, and we begin to understand the deeper meaning of the text. Not just this passage we're reading, but how does that passage fit into everything else we've read and everything else in the Scriptures? It is an incredible book. And remember why we're doing this, because in a few moments it may feel like English class, particularly today. And after this, we're downhill. We're going to use what we've learned to dive into Colossians starting next week. But I said before, the reason we're doing this is by studying the scriptures this way, it forces you to slow down. It forces you to pay attention. And when you're paying attention to scripture, the Holy Spirit has your attention, your focused attention to be able to speak. Now, we're laying a foundation. I want to teach us how to read the Scriptures for ourselves because this may be a surprise to you, but the Scriptures don't say that I'm supposed to teach you all that you're to know. What the Scriptures say is that as a pastor, I'm to teach the truth in season and out of season and nothing else. And my job as a pastor is to help you become a disciple, which means you got to learn to feed yourself, Right? And so there's a point in our path, in our walk with God, where we're no longer infants in the faith. We're no longer depending on other people to teach us everything. We are at the point in our walk where we go, you know what? My teacher is the Holy Spirit. And somebody else may be able to help me see what I've not seen before, but I own my own relationship with Jesus. Only I can abide with him. Only I can read scripture. Only I can do these things. Somebody else can help me, but my spiritual walk is me and the Holy Spirit and Jesus together under the guidance, under the encouragement, under the support of people that, that are my fellow believers in Christ, my church family, and my pastors. So last week we began to say, how do we look at Scripture? What do we see? Today we're going to look for things that connect, things that communicate, and things God emphasizes. So let's jump in with that context. I want to look at things that connect. I came up with eight of these things. Now I also told you that I think next week I'm going to hand out a, uh, uh, a bookmark that's going to have everything we've talked about on a bookmark in front and back. It'll talk about connections, all these things, and you'll be able to put it in your Bible, uh, and it'll help you. So don't feel like you got to write all this down. I will remind you that all of the text of every scripture or every sermon we've ever done at Remnant is on our website for you to download and print. Uh, usually it comes out on Friday before the service, so you can print it and bring it with you if you like. So let's, the first thing I want us to notice is let's look in the Word. We have to pay attention to conjunctions. Conjunctions. And, for, but, therefore, since, because. Conjunctions connect. 
The most obvious is the word therefore. Every time you see the word therefore, or because, or as a result of, or since, or and, those are words that you just need to stop and pay attention to, because they're connectors. It's always connecting what was just said with what's about to be said. Okay, so when you see the word therefore, or anything like it, you should stop and say, okay, what's that there for? Because they're transitioning you from one thought to another, and they're going to connect the two thoughts. We also have to look at sense and because. Let's look at one, Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And you look at that word, therefore, and your question is, why is it there? The first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul spends every chapter talking about the beauty of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every passage, every word, 11 straight chapters, he's talking about how great the gospel is, how wonderful it is what Jesus did, why he came, what he did. And then in verse 12, he says, and therefore... Okay, in other words, based on everything else we've been talking about, those 11 chapters, therefore, as a result of all we just learned, we need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. It's the only normal response when we understand the weight, the magnitude, the magnificence of the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for us. One word connects all those thoughts and all the chapters to about what he's going to say. Because of the truth of what Jesus did, because of the truth of the good news, you need to present your body as a living sacrifice in spiritual worship. Paul spends 11 chapters and then he says, the gift of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gospel. And when that gets, makes perfect crystal clear sense to you, then in one word he connects it to, as a result of all that, this should be your response. Therefore, Based on all that Jesus did, worship him by presenting your body to him to become what he became, a sacrifice. To connect with him by surrendering all and then connect with him by loving others. The key to understanding Romans 12.1 and the passages after Romans 12 is that connecting word, one word, therefore. So the first connection is a conjunction. The next thing we're going to look for is prepositions. By, with, from, in, upon, on, through, prepositions. Let me show you one. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When you look at that passage and you see the prepositions, and you slow down, you begin to see deeper truths. I have been crucified with Christ. I shared the experience with him. What he went through, I, I'm crucified with Christ. I have to die to my old self like he died. I have to surrender. I, I'm crucified with Christ. We've been crucified. We, we share that experience. You and I have identified with him in his death. 
In order to follow Jesus, we too must die. We have to die to our old opinions. We have to die to our old sins. Our flesh nature has to die. So just like Jesus walked out of the tomb, we can be born again and live in the spirit. I was crucified with Christ. Paul says, I no longer live, but there's a connector. I no longer live, but because we've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but here comes the next preposition. Christ lives in me. In me, not beside me, not alongside me. Christ lives in me. You see, I have been crucified with him. And just like he walked out of the tomb, he now lives in me. He took up residence within you and me. We've died in the flesh. We've been risen spiritually and now he lives in and through us. And then we move to the next preposition. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. So in our bodies, while on earth, Christ lives in us. He lives through us. He does his work, his spiritual work, telling the gospel, the good news of himself, to the lost through me and you. And so I live by faith. It's not just my faith, it's where I've placed my faith. Notice he doesn't say you live by faith, he says you live by your faith, next preposition, in Christ. If your faith was in anything else, it wouldn't matter. You see, what we do is when we slow down and we look at the prepositions, it forces us to slow down and look at the text. Who's with whom? Who's in whom? How did this work? He loved me and gave himself for me, for me. Notice that the first part of this passage is all about, I no longer live, I don't do this. And now it's like he did this for me. This one passage is full of prepositions, inviting you and me to slow down and digest what God is saying through Paul. You could have an incredible quiet time looking at this one verse and focusing only on the prepositions. It's amazing how it opens up the scriptures to all of us. The next thing we're going to learn to look for is questions and answers. Anytime you see a question mark in the Bible, don't you dare go past it until you realize that there's gold inside that question. Just trust me, question marks, exclamation points, things repeated three times, huge in scripture. Question marks, just tell you to dive in. In Romans, several chapters start with Paul asking a question. And then he spends the rest of the chapters answering it. Every chapter almost up through the first chapters. Chapter three, what advantage is there in being a Jew, he asks. And then in chapter three, he answers it. Chapter four, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? And then he answers it. Chapter six, Shall we go on sinning so that grace can increase? And he answers it. Chapter seven, do you not know that the law is binding only as long as you live? And then he goes and answers it. In these chapters, Paul is having a dialogue with his readers. It's the question marks that bring you into relationship. Questions almost always force you to go deeper. Let me give you an example. Genesis chapter three, God looking for Adam after he sinned. Where are you? That's a question. Where are you physically? No, he knew that. 
Where are you spiritually? Where are you in our relationship? Questions almost always dive to spiritual content, not physical. Adam, I know where you are. I know where you are physically and spiritually, but do you know where you are now? Mark 8, 9. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. A lot of things to think about. Another question from Jesus. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? In Luke chapter 10, who is my neighbor? Luke 24. Who do you look for living among the dead? Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Mark 8.29, who do you say I am? Job 14.14, if a man dies, will he live again? Mark 8.38, what good is it for a man to forfeit his soul, as we talked about? Psalm 8.4, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Genesis 18.14, is anything too hard for God? Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Hebrews 13.6, if we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Matthew 7, 27, 22. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Christ? Pontius Pilate's question to the crowd and to all of us. What shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? When you see a question mark, God is asking a question through the scriptures, usually a spiritual question to you and me. Don't blow through question marks. It's God's way of dialoguing with us. The next thing we're going to look for is cause and effect. Cause and effect reveals the promises of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's, and then the effect, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's the promise of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but, there's a connector, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Cause is sin, the effect is death. Causes the free gift of God, the effect is eternal life. Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Cause, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Effect, you will discern the will of God. When you begin to notice cause and effects, you begin to see deeper truths. Action and then reaction. Cause and effect, obedience followed by a promise. They all come together when you slow down and notice. And when you see a cause and effect that's a promise, you can say, you can reverse it and say, if I want that promise, what does God say I need to do? Right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Okay, if I want all the things that I need added to me, the blessings of God that he has stored up for me, what do I need to do? I need to seek first the kingdom. Next thing we're going to look at is means. When something happens, by what means did it happen? Was it man? Was it the Holy Spirit? Was it Satan? Look for words by or through. Matthew 4.1. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
The Spirit took Jesus to be tempted. That opens a deeper truth in that passage. Jesus didn't just go. The Holy Spirit, as he comes up out of the baptism water, and as the Bible says that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, the first thing the Holy Spirit does is take him to the wilderness to hang out with Satan. Just think about that for a while. Acts 20, 22, and now behold, Paul speaking, I'm going back to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. Paul's saying, look, I'm headed back. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. He's headed back to Jerusalem. He knows that bad things are going to happen there, but the Holy Spirit has told him to go. Just like Jesus led to the wilderness with the Spirit, Paul is led to Jerusalem bound by the Spirit. Notice the means. It ties these two passages together. When you begin saying, oh, wait a minute, Jesus was bound to go into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and Paul now is going to Jerusalem bound by the Spirit. Okay. The Holy Spirit takes us to places we don't want to go. And often has us do things to fulfill the purposes of God that we may not want to do. He led Jesus in the wilderness. He led Paul to Jerusalem. Where's he going to lead me? You see how noticing these things slows you down and begins to, you develop your own ability to just look at Scripture. The next thing I want you to see is conditions and consequences, cause and effect, if, then. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In John 15, the passage where Jesus talks about the vine and the vine dresser, it has tons of if-then statements. If you remain in me, then I'll remain in you. If a man remains in me and I in him, then he will produce much fruit. If you're cut off from me, then you can do nothing. If you stop dwelling in me, then you will be cut, hauled off, and burned in fire. If you abide in me and my words in you, and they continue to live in your heart, then ask whatever you ask, and I will do it for you. If you keep my commandments, then you'll be able to abide in my love and live on. You see, these passages, the if-thens, the cause and effects, tell us slow down, because every one of those effects is usually a promise from God. Jeremiah 29, 11, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You can if you seek me with all your heart, then there's a promise. Then you will find me. You could spend years thinking about this. So if I don't seek him with my heart, I won't find him. How, what other way could I seek him? Well, I could seek him with my mind. I could seek it with my intelligence. I could try to gain knowledge and not really care about a relationship. And you start processing, what does he mean, seek with your heart? Am I half-hearted in my desire to know him, or am I sold out? Am I at the point in my life where I have to know? I absolutely have to know. It's the most important thing to me. And then he says, if you seek me in that condition, you'll find me. It's a promise from God. It's an if-then. The next thing I want you to look at is lists. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Lists are huge in the Bible. When things are itemized, ask a question. Why is this listed? Why are they ordered in this way? We covered lists in a different message, but they're always important and they always point us to gold. Genesis 5, 21. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. When you see a list in the Bible, write it out. Slow down, pay attention. Is there an order? Why did they put it in that order? Is something missing that you thought would be there? Why is it not there? Love is first. In Hebrew writing, lists are always at orders of importance, most important to least. Now, the shade could only be a little, but they're from that direction to the next. It's not a surprise that in this passage, the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Second, love others. As you know what I mean? So you're looking at love is important. What does Jesus say? Faith, hope, and love, and the one that persists. So, so what happens is you begin to realize that just from this list, that love is, well, it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit. I, I can't say that I have the Spirit in me if I'm not developing a love for people. And one of the ways you know the Spirit is now residing in you is you begin to love people you didn't love before. You begin to care about people you didn't care about before. Love becomes part of who you are, not something you choose to do. It's the essence of who you are. And so what happens is we begin to see in these lists that love is really important. And then comes joy. The joy of a new life, the joy of understanding what's happening. And then after that, the most important thing most of us want is peace. Wow, this love brings joy to me. And I find the peace I've been looking for. You see, I've been struggling trying to find peace. And now the Spirit is growing it in me. Patience, kindness, they all fall one after the other. Ask yourself, how are they linked? How are they different? How many are in the list? Numbers are important in Scripture. Next thing I want you to see are pronouns. Pronouns are critical. I'm going to show you a long passage because I want you to see how paying attention to the pronoun helps you interpret the Scripture. Let's look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter. 2 Peter? Maybe 2 Peter. Chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, is it not there? 2 Peter, no? Okay, there we go. All right. Verse 19. Do we have the one before it? Verse 1? Uh, yeah, let's go to Ephesians. Sorry, my bad. All right. Let's look at this one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us and the beloved. Who's he talking about? Us, all of us, right? Okay, let's go to the next slide. Uh, let's look at second. Go to the next slide. I think I messed this up, but okay, go to the next slide. Do you have a second Peter 2.19? Go to that one. Thank you. 
They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them to have never known the ways of righteousness, and after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is a passage that is often used to suggest that you can lose your salvation. Obviously, the question here is, who's they? Because if I'm they, that scares me, right? I mean, in this passage, it says that even though they've escaped the defilements of the world through knowledge, it's worse than it would be for them never have known. Am I they, right? Well, I told you Scripture always interprets Scripture. This is verse 19. If we go back to verse 1, we get to see something that helps us. Look at verse 1. But false prophets, 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets who arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The entire chapter is about false teachers, people who come into the church to destroy it. When at the end of this chapter, God says it had been better for them to have never known than to do what they did. The context carries the power. The pronouns tell you who's who. You can't rip this scripture out of context and say, see, there it is. You can lose your salvation. You have to know what the pronouns teach you. Okay, now I just realized the mistake I made. So we're going to go back. And I want you to put up Ephesians again. Uh, 1 verse 3. Okay, you see all the blessed be the God of the Father who chose us, 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 right? Now go to the next slide, I hope. There it is. All of a sudden, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace, which he lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will. Down in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Still talking about all of us, right? Now go to the next slide. The entire thing changes in verse 13. So that we who were the first hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him, you. Paul is now transitioning the entire process from all of us to you individually. And he says here, you, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is, by noticing the pronouns, it doesn't matter what everybody else in this room does, believes, doesn't believe. We have all been blessed. We have all received. We have, but then he says, the question is, what about you? You see, because only you can believe. Only you can surrender. Only you can believe in Jesus. And only your faith in Jesus gets you sealed in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what everybody else around you is doing. And by noticing the pronouns, you see Paul switch in that verse from we to you. Driving it home. This is what's happened to all of us. This is what we all share in. But the real question is, are you really sharing or not? Are you sealed with the Holy Spirit? 
After we look at the things that we look to see, I want to look at how things, how the word communicates. Now, this is one that often we just blow through. We don't think much about. But how did the writer choose to communicate the message? Words, images, phrases that, that transmit emotion or mood or tone. This is where we get to experience the text. What does the writer make me feel? We did this a few weeks ago. I asked you to listen to a passage and just, how does it feel? Well, it was encouraging. It was supporting. Okay. We got to pay attention to the emotions. Because if you rip a scripture out of context with emotion, you can be misled. You have to know what kind of emotion you're seeing. Now, this is the part of the Bible where you get to read imaginatively. I'm not saying make things up or convey things that aren't there, but to feel the emotion of the writer. Don't study the Bible like it's some academic lecture. Experience it. Think about the emotion in Jeremiah 3 as God talks to his people. I said how I would set you among my sons and give you pleasant land and a heritage, the most beautiful of the nations. And I thought you'd call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous life leaves her husband, so you've been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You can feel his emotion. I was faithful to you and you're walking away chasing other gods. What are you doing? Galatians 4.12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. How then have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You can feel Paul expressing the emotion of one who feels the pain of rejection of those he has diligently served for years. At one time, they would have done anything for him. Now they've made him their enemy. You can feel the emotion in his words. What happened? When you read Genesis 22 and you have Abraham on the mountain with Isaac, Connect to the emotion of a father giving his son on an altar to kill him, knowing that that's exactly what our Heavenly Father did. By connecting with the emotion, we begin to be drawn in because first and foremost, the story of God is a human story. A son submitting to the will of his father. Isaac allowed it to happen. The relief of a substitute taking his place. Connect with the emotion of the relief of a substitute taking your place. You see how the emotions begin to open the text up for you. Luke 13, 33, Jesus, right before he's crucified. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing can you imagine coming to save someone, knowing that you're going to die in the process and the ones you came for, the ones you thought would receive you, don't care? We have to connect to the emotions. Next thing I want us to look at is what does the word emphasize? Look at verbs. Verbs are huge. 
How is the action taking place? Is the verb past, present, or future? In passages, often the verbs will change tense, and if you miss that change, you'll miss the meaning of the passage. Ephesians 11, 1.11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Is this something we have to do in the future? No, the verb's past tense. It's done. But notice the verb works. That's present tense. In him, we have obtained, past tense, an inheritance. Having been predestined, done. According to the purpose of him who works, present tense. Who is now alive, well, living, working in you. All things according to the counsel of his will. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. In this passage, the verbs change twice. The verb tense, I have been crucified. Christ lives in me, present tense. Past tense, present tense. He loved and gave himself, past tense. The verb reminds us that the salvation work of Jesus Christ is finished. When you speak of the things that happened on the cross, when you speak of what Jesus did for you, every time in the scriptures, it's past tense, always. And when you speak of what God is now doing in you and through you in the spirit, it's always present tense, and usually it's present participle, meaning it's an ongoing, continuing present tense that will never stop. Verbs are huge. Sometimes the verb is imperative. In other words, it's a command verb. We should pay attention to commands, right? If Jesus commands us, we better pay attention to it. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Past tense. Stop there for a minute and realize what he just said. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I now have it forever. It's been given. It's past tense. There's not more to come. There's not more that I'm getting. I already have it all, every bit of it. Go, therefore, that's the command, although we misinterpret it. Go, therefore, here's the actual command. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. The command here is not so much to go, although that is a command, but go make disciples. Make disciples. He didn't say go make converts. He didn't say go explain the Bible to everybody. He said you go make, you make disciples. How do we make disciples? Well, here's what Jesus did. Here's the good news. You've surrendered. Let me teach you. Let me guide you. Let me come alongside you. Let me share life with you. Let me show you how to read the Bible so that you can grow and replicate and do that for somebody else. You see, Jesus said go make disciples. In the church today, often... We just try to make converts and then we hand them a book. And then we wonder why they don't look any different than everybody else in the world who doesn't know Jesus. Because we haven't taught them how to grow. The command in this verse is to make disciples, baptize them and teach them. It's a list, a list of commands. Make disciples, baptize disciples, teach them. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ... 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You have been raised. It's passive, past tense. Seek the things that are, are above. That's present tense. Other thing I want you to pay attention to is space. Space in the text. How much time does God spend telling a story? Because if you understand how much time he spends, you get a sense of what he thought's the most important, right? If we look at Genesis, it has 50 chapters. It's a lot of chapters. 11 cover the creation, the fall of man, and the scatter of mankind throughout the world. One and a half chapters on creation. The entire created universe, everything you've ever seen, everything we haven't discovered, every protoplasm, every star, every nebula, everything. The entire of all creation that God spoke into existence gets a chapter and a half. The story of the rebellion of man, the problem with the relationship with God, the, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of the Jewish people growing, the Abraham and Jacob, and I, that all takes up the rest of the 50 chapters. What's God telling us by the way he uses space? I can create a world like that. Nothing to it. I spoke it and it happened. That's all that matters. But I didn't just create a world so you'd stand back and be wowed that I can create a world. I created a world because, next 40-something chapters, I want a relationship with you. And you've blown it. And now I've got to find a, a way, or I know a way where I'm going to bring you back to me. You see, the story here is the relationship of God with his people, not the fact that he can speak and make a universe. And we talked about before that those of us who are believers are going to outlive the universe. We're going to outlive everything we see. We're going to see it all burn up. Why? Because the universe does not matter an ounce to God unless his people are there to experience it. That's why he created it. He can make another one. That's the point. The point is relationships are important. God thinks that pouring out his blessing and promises on his people is more important than wowing us with a creation. The next thing I want us to pay attention to is when you see a purpose statement. This should be pretty obvious to us. When a writer tells you why they're doing something, you don't have to interpret it, you just have to remember it. We're looking for things like, in order that, so that. John 20, 31. But these are written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. Why did John write the book of John? He tells you. So you'll believe in Christ, Clear purpose statement. And that by believing, you'll have life in his name. That's why I'm writing this book. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. The reason he chose you, the purpose, that you should go and bear fruit. He didn't say, I saved you so that you could be frozen chosen. I saved you. I didn't save you so you could have an eternal life insurance policy. No, I saved you because I'm going to transform you, live through you, and through the Spirit and through the power of the, of the fruit. I'm not here just to save you. I want you to have that fruit manifested in you so when people look at you, they go, I've never seen that love before. That's got to be from God. I've never seen that kind of peace before. Where did that come from? 
the throne of God. I've never seen that kind of patience and kindness and joy before. Where did that come from? I want that. I don't have it. It comes from the Spirit of God. Let me tell you about him. These passages tell us that it's not just about avoiding hell and going to heaven. We're to bear fruit on this earth so people can see Jesus. The next time you want to keep your faith private between you and God, this purpose statement drives it deeper and doesn't let you stay there. I also want you to pay attention to order in the Bible, particularly orders and lists. We've talked about this. Do you know that when the disciples are mentioned in the Bible, they're always mentioned in the same order? Almost always. In Mark 3 and Matthew 10, they're identical. In Luke 6 and Acts 1, they're identical. They only differ by two at the bottom of the list, and it has to do with where they placed Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Okay? Remember, lists are important, so as Judas gets to Acts, they don't even mention him. They're done with him, right? By noticing the pattern, it does. Also in that pattern, Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John are always listed first. In that order, every time, all four, Peter, James, and John. Unusual, because if the list was by age, John would have been the last. He was the youngest. When they went around the table, the youngest sat next on the right side at the, at the uh, Last Supper. The one that leaned on Jesus' breast because he was right next to him was John, the youngest. But now in the list, they're not going by age. They're going by importance. Peter, James, John. Peter the rock. Peter the one that will be the leader of the church. Peter the one that Jesus said, feed my sheep. He's at the top. Then James, then John. Lists always signify the order. Could be importance, significance, age, but it's almost always in Jewish and Greek writing, most important to least. It's almost never the other way. If it is the other way, a, a Jewish person would immediately notice it and wonder what they're trying to tell you, and we should notice it as well. Exaggeration. We're almost to the end. Exaggeration. Also called a hyperbole. We make an exaggeration to make a point. John 4, 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman, the woman at the well, who testified, he told me all that I ever did. He probably did not have a discussion with her about everything she's done her entire life. Well, on this morning you ate 16 peas, 32 things of hum, whatever. He, he didn't do that. He knew her so well, it was this, he was opening her up and he still loved her. She's exaggerating to make the point. Matthew, or Mark 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judah and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We know that's not true. Pharisees didn't get baptized. You read this verse, everybody got baptized. And I've seen people take hyperboles out of context to make a point. If the hyperbole exaggerates what we know to be true in Scripture, not everybody in Jerusalem, which was at Passover over a million people, had John himself baptized them. He's making a point that it looked like droves were coming. 2 Corinthians eleven seven. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you, Paul says. Now, do you really think Paul went around robbing churches? No. He's making a point. 
Matthew 23, the words of Jesus, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Again, an exaggeration to talk about what they do to give you an image. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. He uses the word hate to signify the importance of not putting anything ahead of him. Other places in scripture, he tells you to love, honor, and obey. Your, he's not going to tell you to not hate them. What he's saying is, when it comes to spiritual things, if I'm not the most important thing, if there's something that's gonna keep you from salvation, from heaven, you better start disliking it. Exaggerations. So now we have some idea of what we're looking for. We need to sharpen our skills of listening to the word, of reading the word, of looking to see what we see, of slowing down. You notice that in each of these, you have to slow down and notice the pronouns. You gotta slow down and notice the list. You gotta look through. When you see a question mark, mark it. Something's important there. When you read the scriptures and you start to feel something, you need to pay attention to that feeling. Don't just blow through it. When you see a list, write down the list over in the margin or write it in a notepad and ask yourself, why is it that way? Why do they say it that way? What's not on the list that should have been? When there's a question and then there's an answer that follows, don't look at the answer until you think, how would I have answered that question? What do I expect the answer to be? And then when the answer is not what you expected it to be, you begin to feel like a first century audience going, what's he talking about? You see, that's how it works. So here's what we're going to do. This week, I want you to look at the passage we're going to look at next week. It's Colossians 1, 15 through 29. 14 verses. It's one of the most incredible passages in Scripture because it paints images, it uses prepositions, it uses lists, it uses all the things we basically taught about. I'm going to, it's Colossians 1. Okay, Colossians 1, verse 15 through 29. We're going to spend next week on this. Let me read it to you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith." stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory, him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I told, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now, if you think about all the things we've been through, in this passage, there are lists, there are prepositions, there are comparisons, there are visual images. It's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. In this passage, when you slow down and you begin to notice these things, it just buries in your heart. I mentioned uh, early on in this series that I'm not a huge fan of read through the Bible in a year. If you've never read through the Bible, read through the Bible. But don't feel like you have to do it in a year. You're not promised the next year anyway. Read and learn. Okay, I would rather, for instance, that you take a passage like this and spend a year on it. Because the truth of the entire message of the gospel is in this passage. It tells you who Jesus was, what he did, why he did. He's the image of the invisible God. That you could spend weeks thinking about that all by itself. So Colossians 1, verse 15 through 29, we'll begin to dive into it next week. What I want you to do this week is just begin to look at it and ask yourself, what kind of things have we been talking about do I now see? Because as I read that, and particularly when you pull it to look at it, you're going to see prepositions. You're going to see verb tenses. You're going to slow down and notice things you may not have noticed before. And that's where we're going. We're going to see the gold that's in this passage and the ones that follow as we take what we've learned and we begin to move into Colossians. So this week, we, and last week, and the ones before, we looked at what do we see. We're going to start moving towards what did it mean to them in the first century, okay? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that your word is so deep. In fact, when we begin to see just the way a preposition is used or a verb is used or a verb tense is used, there can be no doubt that this book was not written by man. Many books, many writers, over 1,500 years, most of whom didn't even know each other, and the verb tenses all align, the prepositions align, the stories align, the themes align. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the same story. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, the Messiah coming, and everything in the New Testament points to Jesus returning in judgment. <clears throat> and God, yet there are people that don't know. They don't know. God, we want to be the people that bring the gospel to people. We want our lives to reflect you, but we have to know your word. We can't just know about it. We have to experience it with you. We have to abide in the text. God, would you move your Holy Spirit to become the teacher that we've not allowed him to be? Help us to be the students we've never thought we could be. Help us to pay attention to the words because there's power in those words. You left us a book. Make sure we know what we're to know in that book. So God, we love you. We thank you. Keep us steadfast. Keep us in your word. Teach us everything. Hold our hand, God. Your students, your children are listening. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.